Good afternoon. My name is Christopher Preble, and I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Thank you all for joining us today for a discussion of our new paper, Building a Modern Military, The Force Meets Geopolitical Realities, which can be easily accessed at the Cato website. I want to thank and congratulate my co-authors, Eric Gomez, Lauren Sander, and Brandon Valeriano for producing such a fine piece of scholarship and also acknowledge the contributions of so many others at Cato who read and offered suggestions and those who helped with editing and layout. However, before I begin, I wanna speak candidly about the protests that have been taking place in Washington, DC and throughout the nation. These have affected nearly everyone participating in this event, uh, though some more than others, and I wanna thank them sincerely for their perseverance. The killing of George Floyd, an unarmed black man by a white police officer over a week ago in Minneapolis has evoked both anger and sadness, and we are all struggling with how to prevent similar incidents from occurring. One option available to all Americans is peaceful protest and a demand for redress. Scholars of the Cato Institute have long celebrated the Constitution and the right of speech and peaceable assembly and have long been leaders in calling for greater oversight of police conduct and advocates for thoroughgoing criminal justice reform. And we have all decried the creeping militarization of US foreign and domestic policy. It was bitterly ironic, therefore, when I saw on Twitter pictures of military vehicles outside of Cato's headquarters in the midst of a protest. David, can you show us that picture from Twitter? Thank you. So while we appreciate that people's thoughts may be elsewhere today, we decided to move forward with our forum because the underlying themes in our report of a need to reset America's foreign and defense policy priorities, to constrain the impulse to use force, and to emphasize the other instruments of American power and influence, these themes still resonate. And indeed, they resonate far beyond what we discuss over what we will discuss over the next few hours. As we explained in the preface, which we wrote uh, about a month ago was when we finished our preface. The clearest threats to public safety and political stability in the United States are very much evident and all around us. Just how demonstrations of force or foreign stability operations contribute to US national security is particularly questionable at a time when a microscopic enemy has brought the entire world to a standstill. Now, we wrote that, of course, thinking of the coronavirus and COVID-19, the response to it. But I might add that had we written the preface in the last week, we would have also noted that civil unrest has laid bare the deep divisions within our country. We can and must heal these divisions before embarking on an ambitious program to reshape global politics. We urgently need nation building right here at home. And that begins with healing the deep divisions in our politics. This isn't the first time, however, that the United States has had to deal with such things. And while it was painful, we ultimately prevailed. I'm reminded of a speech from 1838 by a young politician from Illinois who noted America's fortunate circumstances. At what point, he asked, shall we expect the approach of danger? It would not come from some transatlantic military giant who stepped across the ocean and crush us at a blow. 
all the armies of Europe, Asia, and Africa combined, with all the treasure on the earth, he predicted, could not by force take a drink from the Ohio or make a track on the Blue Ridge in a trial of a thousand years. But that didn't mean that, we, that there weren't grave threats to the Republic. Abraham Lincoln predicted, if danger ever approaches these United States, if it ever reach us, it must spring up amongst us. It cannot come from abroad. If destruction be our lot, he continued, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. I was remembering that speech at a time when these deep divisions are so obvious to all of us. And I wanted to take a moment to remind us all of the need to heal these divisions. So I thank you for giving me this uh, opportunity. But now let me turn to our first panel featuring my colleagues and co-author of this report, my colleague, Lauren Sander. She's the External Relations Manager for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at Cato. And Wendy Jordan, Senior Policy Analyst at Taxpayers for Common Sense. After brief intermission, the second panel will feature the other authors of this paper, Eric Gomez, Director of Defense Policy Studies at Cato, and Cato Senior Fellow, Brandon Valeriano, along with TX Hannes of the National Defense University. So Lauren, I thought I'd go to you first. What do you want readers to take away from this study? Thanks, Chris. Um, and thank you for your opening remarks. I won't say too much more, but I know it's been difficult, especially for those living uh, in DC and uh, those who are affected by everything that's happening right now. Um, so I appreciate your remarks and that we are moving forward with the event um, because the things that we have to say about restraint really do apply at home, even though we don't necessarily touch on that in the paper. So um, what I would like people to get out of this, uh, I mostly focused on the budget section, which is why I'm in this first panel. Um, and I just think that something that I've always been passionate about is um, government oversight um, and accountability. And that's something, Chris, you and I have actually worked on together since I've been at Cato. Um, and when it comes to OCO and the other mechanisms of, of, of budgeting, our military specifically, I think that we owe it to our military and the men and women who serve us to reprioritize, um, look at, rethink our decisions. Um, this isn't, this paper is not about budget cutting. It's not about being anti-military. I think sometimes people can misconstrue that um, based on the word restraint alone. And the idea is that we're trying to not stretch our budget and our military so thin that they can't perform the jobs um, that they signed up to do. And they're being asked to do things that they really shouldn't be doing. Um, and we should reprioritize what we focus on, future um, prioritizing innovation, for instance, um, and how to make our troops happy, how to keep them healthy. Um, and that's that's really important. And there's a lot that I could get into. Um, and we, we don't necessarily expound upon all of that in detail in this particular iteration of the paper. Um, but it's very important. And that's where my my interest in working on this came from. Um, and, and I think that 
if we're ever going to end forever wars or move towards utilizing our other foreign policy tools, um, that we need to look to Congress and to the Pentagon at how they're communicating with each other and, um, and to our allies. You know, we, we fund uh, the European Defense Initiative through OCO. And yet at the same time, we try to convince our allies and our European allies that this is a program that's really important to us. So how do we convince them that this is important um, and a long-term strategy for us if it's in a contingent fund? Um, so these are just things that we need to think about. We need to think about how our allies look at us and if we're following through on our promises. Um, and if it's not a priority, then we need to think about that as well. We need to signal if we're gonna move it to the base budget. You know, I just think that everything really needs a rethink. And that is, um, that is in service of our uh, men and women in uniform, not, not to try to take anything away from them. So I think that's really, that's really important that people understand about this. It's not, let's cut the budget just to cut, cut the budget. It's, let's work with how the budget was actually supposed to be created, the NDAA, and what, what is stopping that from happening. So you'll see that in the budget pathology section of the paper. Um, there are a lot of rules in place and they are largely being ignored, um, which I'll get into later in so will Wendy, I believe. Um, so yeah, to wrap it up, I think I just, thank you, Chris. <laughs> we'll go to Wendy next. Thank you, Lauren. No, that was terrific. Thank you very much. I, um, before I go to Wendy, let me, let me just uh, tell everyone who's watching that, that you can submit your questions via the webpage, uh, also uh, via Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Um, the hashtag, of course, is hashtag CatoFP. So if you want to ask a question, use hashtag CatoFP. And uh, I thought that was terrific. Lauren, thank you very much. Wendy, how about you? What stands out to you from this study? Uh, first, Chris, thank you so much for having me uh, as part of your panel. I wish we could all be in the same room, but that's not the world we're living in right now. Uh, and I really want to thank all four authors uh, of this piece for their scholarship. And I think it's an important um, uh, submission into the discussion that we really need to be having now as a country. Uh, so you asked me what jumped out at me and, you know, Chris, you've known me for a long time. So you know that as a budget nerd of longstanding, I focused on what you have delightfully termed uh, the budget pathologies, which Lauren mentioned in her uh, first remarks. Uh, I love that turn of phrase. I'm jealous that I didn't think of it first. And uh, when I steal it, I'll uh, be sure to give you guys credit for it. It's a great term. Um, <laughs> Uh, Congress not exercising its traditional uh, powers of the purse that were granted by the Constitution, I consider to be the worst of the pathologies. Um, uh, I am a former uh, congressional staffer. I worked for a member of the House Appropriations Committee. I'm an institutionalist. Uh, I strongly believe that Congress has a role, has the preeminent role in the appropriating of federal funds. Uh, the, Cong the president uh, proposes his budget, and then the Congress takes over, and the Congress decides what line items are going to be funded and at what levels. And I think that that's very important, and it is getting lost in the mix in the last three and a half years. Uh, then the ongoing overuse, or I really believe misuse, of the Overseas Contingency Operations accounts, the OCO accounts that Lauren mentioned, uh, which are supposedly 
off budget, uh, but certainly contribute to our deficit. Uh, and abuses of them like the European Deterrence Initiative and the potentially the Pacific Deterrence Initiative, although we don't know yet how that's going to be funded. Um, uh, the use of the Pentagon budget as a piggy bank. Uh, it is the largest portion of the discretionary budget. Uh, and with the help of OCO to avoid budget pressure uh, to the Pentagon top line, it is sort of the go-to place, unfortunately, it has become uh, for taking money that Congress appropriated for Pentagon-specific purposes and spending it elsewhere. And the most recent and most famous example of this is the president uh, reprogramming funds that were appropriated by Congress for very specific military construction programs in both uh, the United States and overseas and saying that this is an emergency and those funds have to be reprogrammed and spent on a barrier on the border. Uh, that's the, the most egregious in my mind uh, abuse of the system. Uh, at TCS, we firmly believe that military strategy has to be resource informed. The two things cannot happen separate from one another. Military strategy cannot be built in a vacuum. And you can't divorce military strategy from the practicalities of, of the rest of the federal government and budgets. So those are the things that leapt out at me. And thanks again for having me be part of this. Absolutely. Thank you, Wendy. Uh, so the report does emphasize that the nation's resource constraints are real and therefore the need to prioritize the the, the overarching message in this document is of the need to uh, especially prioritize innovation and uh, sort of scrutinize legacy systems and things like that. Uh, but I, I'm mindful that uh, some people disagree with this argument and, and I, I wanna come back to that. So, so some people would argue that in a $20 trillion economy, we could easily sustain military budgets approaching $1 trillion by the middle of the decade. And it was your own work that had sort of documented that by the National Defense Strategy Commission's report, uh, if we were to achieve what they said was necessary, a three, three to 5% real growth uh, over five to seven years, that's where we would be by the middle of the decade, close to uh, $1 trillion. So how would you respond to those who argue that we simply have no choice but to spend more on our military because we can't possibly contemplate asking our military to do less. How would you respond to that, Wendy? Uh, thanks for the question. First of all, when I did that calculation uh, early one morning, I was sitting reading through that re commission report and I said to myself, three to 5% real growth, what the heck, what would that be? And uh, there was another guy in the office um, uh, David was in the office and I, I called to him and I said, uh, can you get me whatever is the inflator for the next X number of years? And he and I ran the numbers and it was so huge. I thought I must have done this wrong somehow. You know, and so I said, David, would you check my math? And he's like, no, that's right. Uh, it, it's just numbers that uh, I you know, I work in the defense budget sphere. I'm used to big numbers, but man, uh, there are numbers that are so big, you really can't wrap your head around. Uh, so uh, my response would be that with a national debt at just under $26 trillion 
and a deficit of CBO's most recent um, uh, prediction is a $3.7 trillion deficit. Uh, we better start making hard decisions on what missions are critical. And, you know, Chris, you and I have been around long enough to remember um, the old two major regional contingency uh, strategy that we were had to be ready for uh, two major regional contingencies in, in different portions of the globe. Uh, and that was doctrine. That was how we built the budgets in the Pentagon when I was in the Pentagon and how the uh, combatant commanders made their plans and how the services responded to how they would uh, equip and man to meet those requirements. And it was doctrinal. And that was in the 90s. Well, when was the last time you heard anybody talking about two MRCs? Uh, a long time ago. So doctrine can be adjusted. Doctrine should be adjusted. Strategy needs to be adjusted. And the world is changing. Strategy has to be agile. And we have to consider the rest of the responsibilities of the federal government, not just national security. Great, thank you. I, uh, I have a few other questions myself teed up, but I, I wanted to call attention to um, uh, Ed Backrack asked a question about uh, conventional wisdom tells us that, uh, that defense is uh, more cost effective than offense. Uh, and uh, that preparing for uh, contingencies is how we uh, ensure that they don't occur. How, how do we balance uh, threats? I'll just, I will respond to Ed's question just out of the gate. One of the things that we did in this paper is we tried to reset expectations around uh, the various threats that we are told to worry about. And again, we wrote most of this paper before the coronavirus came along. So we, we had to make some adjustments on the fly. Um, but, but more importantly, uh, how do we balance between offense and defense? How do we um, uh, assess the most likely threats confronting us? And do we believe that the military is the best instrument uh, for dealing with those threats? I'll, I'll let either, either you want to take that one. Lauren, what, you want to say something? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm not supposed to do that. See, that was my mistake. I'm supposed to call. Yeah, don't something. do that. Oh, <laughs> no, I mean, I'll just take part of it in terms of um, the idea of contingency planning is the idea of OCO, which again is the Overseas Contingency Operation Funding. I apologize for not clarifying that in my opening, um, is it, it, it's not a bad thing. And historically, it, it's helpful. Emergency funding can be useful. That is a way, if something does come up, we can you know, properly figure out what we need um, in theater, for in-theater support and what the short term is going to look like. It's just not meant to be long-term long with enduring costs, which is what it has turned into. Um, so just on that aspect of it, um, I think that we can have options that give a little bit of leeway for this you know i um and maybe it won't look like an oco fund in the future it'll look different and we need to um codify our definitions um of of emergency funding as well as national emergency um so that we know how the money is going to be used in the future and how it's going to be appropriated um but it is still useful um the idea of it 
if we were following sort of historical trends before 9-11 hit um, and we were using it for other right. purposes, sort of to scope the budget. Right. So hey, Chris, uh, can I we have another in? question. Go ahead, Wendy. Yeah, please. Go ahead. Of course. All right. Uh, I just wanted to uh, talk about how at the how I understand the OCO budget came to be the OCO budget, which was um, uh, the Overseas Contingency Operations Fund used to be a transfer fund in the Pentagon where you swept up money at the end of the fiscal year that hadn't been spent for whatever reason. And uh, they put it into this transfer fund and it was typically, you know, two to $3 billion that would end up in this fund. Um, and the first time I ever heard of it was uh, in the 90s when we were in the Balkans. And the uh, that was overseas, obviously it was in the Balkans. And uh, it was a contingency as in we hadn't known it was about to happen and we hadn't planned for it and we hadn't budgeted for it. And the army was caught uh, taking all the expenses of that out of hide. And uh, so the OCO transfer fund, which existed at that point, was used to make the army budget whole. Uh, and then post September 11th, of course, we ended up with a lot of uh, emergency supplementals, which is also not the greatest way to fund things. But that's the origins of OCO. And it has morphed into this uh, multi-headed beast that is um, proving very hard to kill. Right, thank you. So uh, there's a question from uh, from Doug. Doug asked, what percent of GDP for military expenditures would we recommend? Would it make most sense to designate a percent percentage of GDP for the military and just force them to prioritize? I wanna take that first, but then I think I also wanna hear from you, Wendy. Um, I, I hear this argument a lot, and, and of course it's certainly true that at other times in American history, the United States spent a larger share of its uh, total economy on on defense, um, uh, but but just because the United States got richer doesn't mean that the United States' uh, military obligations necessarily got larger. In fact, I would argue, and, and certainly after the end of the Cold War uh, and the collapse of the Soviet Union, then the then the United States should not be spending in absolute terms anywhere close what we did to defeat the Soviet Union, and yet. If you look at military spending not as a share of GDP, but as uh, in constant dollars, uh, you can see that U.S. military spending today is well above the level we had on average during the Cold War uh, and rising. Uh, I wonder if you have thoughts, Wendy, on the whole question of percent of GDP as a metric for, me for measuring uh, U.S. military spending. Right. You certainly hear that a lot. Um, I, I would, like you, I, I don't think that that's the right approach. Um, I think we have to have flexibility. Uh, we There are times when you have to respond to something that you're not expecting. Uh, and so to say, this is all you get, uh, that's not the right way either, in my opinion. Uh, I don't think that there is a, a right answer for all time. Things okay. change. It, uh, context, context matters, right? Uh, right. Uh, James Van Houten, uh, I apologize, James, if I'm mispronouncing your name. Uh, what is it you'd like us uh, to take away from this discussion? This first part of the discussion is really focused on sort of the big picture of the budget itself, how the budget is constructed, uh, and then the budget, budget pathologies, how the way that the budget is constructed, how it has impeded innovation and sort of contributed to the to the continuing inertia in the budget. But there's also, the as, as both Lauren and Wendy have talked about, 
is how uh, the use of the Overseas Contingency Operations Fund, for example, to circumvent the, the uh, traditional budgeting techniques and methods, most importantly, the, uh, the National Defense Authorization. Um, those are some of the key messages that we want to have come through in this first session. The second session, which I've already referenced, we'll talk a little bit more, uh, we'll drill down into the force structure on a service-by-service -service basis, and that's what um, uh, Eric and Brandon and TX will talk about. So that's one of the things that we have, want to have come away uh, in that second part of the discussion. So thanks for joining us. Um, let me uh, ask another question that I had teed up. Um, you, let's talk a little bit more about that, Lauren, because you talk about how congressional oversight of Pentagon spending has both um, sort of uh, co has contributed to inertia to a certain extent, made innovation difficult. Can you explain some of the cases where that's been the case, where the where the way that the Congress has funded the Pentagon has actually uh, arguably impeded uh, innovation and adaptability, and ultimately, again, we're we're driving at resilience is what we want to be able to achieve, and that and the inability uh, to adapt and change is in some respects explained by the way the the, uh, the Congress budgets for the Pentagon. Sure. Um, and I think, uh, oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. <laughs> um, so <laughs> a little bit of background. That's Join what I was saying. Right. A little bit of background. Um, I also came from a short stint um, on the Hill. I'm a little bit earlier on in my career. Um, but I, you know, I worked on the NDAA and budgeting like this, and I've watched countless hearings. Um, and a lot of stuff that you see in NDAA, for instance, is um, that the Congress will appropriate, you know, for instance, 20 A-10 um, uh, aircraft and the Pentagon asks for four. And this is a, this is a made up number, um, but you see examples of this, uh, which, which we do cite in the paper as well. Um, and I can look that up if anyone wants the specifics. Um, but you have to sort of wonder why, why are they, you know, it's not, you would think if anything, they're gonna give them less and they're giving them more than they're asking for. So how do we expect our military to work at, at its, at its highest if they if they're not really listening to what they're doing and on both sides you also see in hearings um that it's just so it's just disproportionate and you can understand that a lot of that is coming from pressure um from constituencies but that that creates a very imbalanced system again why are we prioritizing a10s over something that might be more useful in the future for our current threats um a lot of that has to do with uh, you know, money and what districts have the most influence. Um, and, and that's really important. And that's something that I tried to bring to this paper as well is really keeping, keeping in mind that, you know, those pressures should not dictate uh, what's appropriated, but they do. Um, and right. I think it's well important said. to understand that. Yeah. yeah, well said. Of course, one of the issues, you know, that I've worked on uh, for a long time is the need to uh, reduce the number of bases around the country. Uh, for a number of years, secretaries of defense uh, had requested uh, the ability to do another background base realignment and closure. Um, ultimately, uh, former Secretary Mattis just dropped the issue because it was obvious to him that Congress wasn't going to go along, even though my research shows uh, that most military bases are converted to civilian uses fairly quickly, uh, and some uh, do very, very well, frankly, after their move from military matters to uh, to civilian um, uh, for civilian use. Uh, but again, the pressures from uh, constituencies can sometimes impede that sort of that sort of development. 
Um, another question I have, uh, and I'm, yes, go ahead. Oh, if, if I may add, I think an important point Please, that we make uh, in our budget section is, is that um, we are going off of um, perceptions versus need or reality. And I think right. that really right. gets into the minds of the Pentagon planners and also Congress. Um, and then there's just sort of this disconnect um, and it sort of right. paralyzes the process. All right, I'm gonna ask, uh, uh, Dave Hood asks a question. Um, with the COVID bailout as an example, do we think Congress would be unable to pass emergency supplemental funding in a timely way in the event of a real emergency? I think I'm gonna give that one to you, Wendy. Uh, and there's another question from uh, Jacob Platt that I'll ask that. But why don't you, do you believe that in the event of an actual emergency uh, that we could pass supplemental funding quickly or do you need to maintain this uh, OCO slush fund for the unforeseen emergencies because we just don't count, we can't count on Congress to pass these things in a timely fashion. How would you respond to that, Wendy? Uh, in my time of, uh, of watching the Pentagon budget or really the federal budget, uh, I can tell you that I have seen time and time again, Congress rise to actual emergencies. And the first time I saw it was uh, in the 80s uh, when the Loma Prieta um, earthquake happened in San Francisco. And um, uh, to put this in perspective on timing, my recollection is that Nancy Pelosi was a freshman member of Congress when that happened and she was on the Appropriations Committee, as was my boss. Uh, uh, my boss was a Republican member of the Appropriations Committee. And um, Ms. Pelosi came in to uh, full committee markup um, with a plan on what was needed to respond to the emergency of the earthquake in San Francisco. And it was marked up and passed uh, within days. Uh, so yes, Congress can respond to emergencies. Uh, we did that obviously post September 11th, 2001. Uh, in my view, we continued with emergency supplementals way too long. I mean, you can't do that for years, presumably, uh, after about two years of being at war, we were pretty sure we were going to be at war the next year. Uh, so we shouldn't have been funding those out of supplementals. Uh, but yes, Congress can respond to emergencies. Great. Thank you. Uh, Jacob Plott asks, your paper mentions the cost of Navy maintenance relative to the expansion of the fleet as, as proposed by the administration. Uh, he says, by failing to keep pace with the infrastructure necessary to support the Navy, are we not digging a rapidly deepening hole while pursuing an expanded surface fleet. So selfishly, I'll take this question. I, as, as some of you know, I used to serve in the Navy. I still have a very keen interest in the Navy. Um, I think there were several occasions in writing this paper where we wondered, where is the force structure assessment? Where is the force structure assessment? There were rumors that we were going to have one and the number 355 ships was out there, uh, but there were rumors that perhaps um, Navy officials and the Pentagon itself was backing away a little bit or proposing to back away from the 355 ship target. I think Jacob's question is exactly the right one. Uh, if we are unable uh, to maintain and, uh, the existing infrastructure and, and also equally important, we talk about this, the importance of training uh, the crews. If we are not able to maintain training at a very, very high level, uh, then it does, does it make sense to grow the number of ships? Um, and I think we, um, in the section on the Navy, we, we push back on that argument a little bit. We don't believe that the 355 requirement 
uh, ship requirement is 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 that at all? It's a it's a it's a goal. It's a desire, uh, but requirements adjust all the time. And so um, I do think that there's a danger of, of as as Jacob you said, uh, digging a deepening hole uh, by just growing the, the size of the fleet. Um, Chris Calvin uh, asks, do you think two decades of activist foreign policy and maintaining a lengthy war footing? affects domestic policy militarization? If so, how? Um, I showed the picture from Twitter of uh, how surplus military vehicles are being used in the streets of Washington, D.C., and this is something that uh, Cato scholars have been writing about and talking about for a very, very long time. Uh, but uh, Lauren, uh, you've, you've had a ability, I guess, or the, the misfortune of seeing this uh, even closer than I have over the last week and a half. Uh, uh, do you have any thoughts on this? Does, does the militarization of our foreign policy affect our domestic policy? I think so, and we we've seen some we've seen some articles come out about this with some of our colleagues as well, um, and some of the trends that you see, and it, it's pretty scary, especially living in D.C. And also, I've spent a lot of my life um, as a bit of a social justice warrior, and you know, I've walked the streets of El Salvador, technically years after unrest, um, and you see police officers everywhere and armed police officers and the idea of of that happening here is very scary and i think it has a lot to do with our our constant militarized foreign policy and the idea that we need to use our military for everything and now the idea that we need to use our military for protests is terrifying um it, it makes me think of bahrain and, and other countries who the immediate idea is to use them to quell any sort of uh, protest. And I, I think it has a lot to do with our overuse of the military. And again, asking them to do things they're not supposed to do. That is what we recommend in this paper is we should utilize our diplomatic efforts, utilize um, other foreign policy tools that is not the military. That, that's just not what they were designed to do. And um, it's, it's scary to see things escalating this way. Right. Thank you. As many as many folks know, I I wrote a book called The Power Problem many years ago, and the old saying goes, when you have a really big hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, <laughs> and I think we see that play, I think we see that play out pretty well. Um, I'm gonna give this one to you, Wendy. This is a question from Noah Stevens. Noah asks, it's obvious that the budget suffers from bloat, but what areas of the defense budget, if any, deserve more investment or resources? In other words, what are we currently undervaluing uh, within the defense budget as a share of its resources? Do you have thoughts on that? Uh, I do, actually. Uh, I think that, um, and this is not a hugely popular opinion, uh, the, the greatest area of increase of um, the costs of the Pentagon is in personnel functions uh, and um, healthcare costs and uh, retirement costs. Those are really squeezing the other portions of the Pentagon, uh, the, of the Pentagon budget. And I think that um, R&D is one of the most important and, and least thought of for, by people on the outside uh, portions of the Pentagon budget. Uh, if you're not pursuing robust research and development in the issues that we're going to be facing in the future, then you're really missing the boat. Uh, and what happens, unfortunately, 
uh, is you end up with a bow wave effect, as it's called, uh, and you you put money into R and D, and as soon as a program gets some R and D funds, then a constituency builds up around it, including a congressional constituency, uh, for supporting that budget line. So it right. funding R and D brings with it its own problems. Uh, because everybody wants their R&D program to be to transition into a procurement program. And of course, if you're doing R&D correctly, not everything's going to end up being procured. Uh, so yeah. I would say I'd like to see more emphasis on long range R&D. Right. Thank you very much. So um, we've got a couple good questions from uh, anonymous viewers, and it gives me an opportunity to emphasize that uh, building a modern military is the first paper that Cato has published in some time on defense policy, but we're hoping for this to be uh, a, uh, a regular event, an annual event, uh, and we could not possibly cover all of the topics that we wanted to in this report, even though it is quite lengthy. Uh, so one of the questions from anonymous viewers is, does, does our analysis address the efficacy of spending on military service academies? No, we do not, but that is something that certainly could be discussed, both the service academies and professional military education uh, at the various war colleges. So that's something that's, uh, I'm glad, uh, whoever asked that question, I'm glad that you did. We'd like to address that. Uh, we have less, a little bit less than 10 minutes left. Um, if you do want to ask a question, remember to use the hashtag CatoFP uh, at uh, Facebook, Twitter, on YouTube, or via the, the website. Um, let me uh, go to another question. Um, we have, um, we've certainly had instances uh, that where things have occurred that have, and one of the questions actually that was, at, was about, you know, once upon a time, we used to have a lot of horses in the cavalry and, the, and uh, there was a horse cavalry until 1944. So, you know, it takes us a long time uh, for doctrine to catch up to technology. Uh, when we began work on this paper, we had no idea that a global pandemic uh, would upend many of the assumptions about the utility of force. Uh, we've seen, uh, tragically, several units in the U.S. military were rendered effectively inoperable by COVID-19. Um, Wendy, I, I, I'd like you to address this question. Do you sense that the lessons that are growing out of the coronavirus and its aftermath, do you believe this will prompt a more uh, thoroughgoing assessment of the balance of spending between the military and other domestic spending priorities, including public health? Uh, I certainly know from my own time in the Pentagon, uh, actually one of my job titles when I worked for the Secretary of the Navy was I was the uh, senior advisor for long range planning, as I recall. And uh, so this was the, the world in which I uh, was immersed for not a terribly long time, but long enough to know that there are people in the Pentagon right now, smart people, uh, smarter than me, who are thinking about exactly that question. Uh, how can the Pentagon both respond and prepare for the new future? Or I guess that's the future, not the new future. Uh, <laughs> but I, I would say that the problem is really not in the Pentagon. Smart people trying to do the right thing and planning for the future. Uh, I would say where a lot of this gets muddled is in the hand-to-hand -hand combat that is the interagency process. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's part of how our government works. And, uh, it, but I, I know firsthand uh, a lot of 
excellent ideas, leave the Pentagon and never survive the interagency <laughs> process and the National Security Council. Right. So, right. Um, Lauren, I, here's another question. You know, you and I had worked on this paper along with Eric uh, and Brandon for some time. Um, what, in your opinion, changed the most over the course of the research and writing? And, and was the paper that we published like what you expected it would be at the beginning? Definitely not, um, to answer your last question. Uh, at the very beginning, our idea was, I, I believe the paper was called Budgeting a Modern Military. So the idea was really to go step-by-step step through our national defense um, and everything you would see in the NDIA or anything that's appropriated to our national defense and come up with recommendations for uh, ways we can spend. And it really evolved pretty quickly into um, more of a bigger picture grand strategy paper. And, and I'm kind of glad that it did. Um, we had a lot of discussions about how this paper would look. And I know one of my biggest concerns was having a little bit too much of excited think tank grand ideas um, for, for Congress specifically. I'm external relations manager. So I always worry a little bit saying if we want to cut a huge program or cut this much money, a lot of times all they're going to see is they just want us to cut money. Why are we going to bother reading this? This is going to upset my constituents. So what we really ended up doing was creating more of an evergreen paper. It really does, you know, we, we, we did it based on up until, as we said, we added a little bit of uh, information after COVID and from the beginning of the year. Um, but really it's, it was up to the uh, FY 2020 appropriations. And so, or, uh, fiscal cycle. So um, we, sorry, Chris, did you? Right. No, no, we didn't. Right. And we didn't okay. want to get bogged down in the, right. the details of a budget, which we recognized the paper would not come out in time before the next budget dropped and we we're sort of chasing our tail. Uh, and so there was an right. opportunity instead to sort of focus on the big picture, but still make, uh, if you look at the actual, there's a summary of recommendations at the end of the document, I think there are over 40 discrete, specific recommendations, mm -hmm. uh, but without any numbers, uh, dollar figures attached to it. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, again, it's trying to be sort of simultaneously bold and get into some detail. Uh, but as you say, I think you said it very well, is to create an evergreen document that sort of takes a step back and says, what is it we're spending and why? Um, mm -hmm. uh, the why question in many respects is, is more important than the what, uh, and often doesn't get asked, it seems to me, uh, here in DC. Mm -hmm. um, or I should say they're in DC. Uh, I'm not in DC right now. Um, uh, we have about we have just about three minutes left. Um, I have a few other good questions. And mostly what I'm going to do is uh, I'll just mention these for the benefit of everyone who's, who's watching, because we've I've seen a number of suggestions for things that we can look at. And if, any, if anything, it becomes sort of a vehicle uh, for revisiting uh, our paper uh, for the for the next year. Uh, someone asked about the VA. This is something we don't dig into in this paper, although it's a subject that is that is of great concern to me. Uh, how do we reform the VA? Do we talk about relying more heavily on private providers? That's something that we could talk about uh, in the future. Uh, another person asks about uh, military bans and chaplains and food services. Again, that's a, a level of detail that we certainly could get into in the future, uh, but we don't in this paper. Um, for those of you who ask, and again, I want to I want to thank everyone for for participating today. Um, uh, I encourage you to to read this paper. 
uh, I encourage you to, to consider how we balance the various threats that are confronting this country, uh, some threats that are not particularly susceptible to military solutions, some threats that are completely immune to military solutions, and that's how we need to re uh, rely more heavily on other instruments of American power, which we've talked about. Um, I mentioned um, uh, that uh, after a brief intermission, uh, my colleagues uh, Eric Gomez and Brandon Bellariano will be joining with TX Hamas uh, to talk uh, more about the paper. Um, I, uh, I want to thank you all for participating. I especially want to thank Wendy and Lauren uh, for joining us today. And uh, if you, unless Wendy and Lauren, you wanted to add anything, I'll, I'll, I'll use this as an opportunity to thank everyone um, uh, for participating. And we'll take a, a quick break. Uh, and I think we're going to resume. Uh, our next panel uh, should resume around uh, 2.15. Uh, so thanks again for everyone for, for joining us today.